Hello, everybody. It is time for the latest edition of 77 Minutes in Heaven, the Dallas Mavericks podcast that's part of the Athletic Podcast Network. I'm Mark Folliwell, television play-by-play voice of the Mavs, and alongside me, as always, the somewhat sore-throated today, but uh, he is ready to talk Mavericks basketball. He's Brian Damaris, the Dallas Mavericks' former director of basketball development. In other words, Brian was the analytics guy before analytics was cool. That is you. The first NBA team to do analytics uh, back when, if you were, basically it's what using an abacus would be for <laughs> yeah. mathematics now. <laughs> very, very basic level. Lots of uh, stacks of data that you handed to Don Nelson, and most of which weren't looked at very in depthly. Uh, every I, once I in a while, I had to color code it to uh, <laughs> green was good and red was bad. Well, I think that right now you would put Kristaps Porzingis in a lot of green, which is something that we'll be discussing at length over the course of today's 30 to 40 minutes that we're breaking down Mavs basketball. But we're speaking to you. Uh, this is becoming a regular thing. We're getting to do this at Followell Manor, which I know that you enjoy the uh, you know the security that you have to get yes. through. and Cross the moat. <laughs> Mike Breen is on the list and, uh, you know, uh, Bob Costas, but somehow my name wasn't on the, you know, automatic entry list. Well, we're, uh, you know, now that you've done it three times, I feel like that security will be used to seeing you. So perhaps we'll uh, we'll adjust that. But it's good to chat with you and it's good to have all of our listeners uh, on board for another week of discussing Mavs basketball. And this is a very opportune time to break down a specific Mavericks game because it comes on the heels of last night, arguably one of the more exciting games of the year, certainly from a perspective of being at home and getting a win in a close game as the Mavericks defeated the New Orleans Pelicans in overtime, 127-123. Now, there's a lot to break down from the game, but one of the things that really stood out to me is what this win accomplishes, Brian, just in terms of weird stats that the Mavericks are on this year. Uh, It's not out of the ordinary for a team to be 75% of the way into the season and not having won an overtime game. Uh, It doesn't happen often, but certainly it's not unheard of. And last night was a first for the Mavericks in that regard. Uh, They played four overtime games this year. They've all been at home, and they had lost the previous three to the Lakers, to the Heat, and to the Charlotte Hornets. But they get the win last night against the Pelicans in OT. But what's even more shocking about it is... Last night represented the first time this year that the Mavericks have trailed in the last four minutes of the game and won the game. The closest they had been was there was an early season home game against Orlando. They were down by two with 440 or 450 or something like that to go in the game, tied the game, went ahead, and they were able to nurse that one over the finish line. Well, the Mavs last night, Brian, were down frequently inside the last four minutes of regulation, and they were trailing a couple of times inside the last four minutes of overtime and managed to... uh, you know, fight their way through the adversity of that and pick up their first victory under those circumstances this year. And and seemingly tried to give it away several times in regulation. Uh, You know, when you're uh, missing a free throw late that could have sealed it, uh, you have a foul to give, but basically only get about a half second go off the clock before yep. you give said foul. And then, you know, I'm a big fan of if you're if you're up three, uh, foul every time. But mm-hmm. but Melly got the ball so quickly and was able to put up a shot over Porzingis that it was actually a smart move not to try to foul because that was a potentially and one situation. But there seemed to be a little, little chaos because Luca didn't know whether the plan was to foul or not, and I'm not sure how that 
couldn't have been communicated. But um, and, and as you mentioned on our post game show last night, that that seemed to bleed over into the first few minutes of overtime as the yeah. Mavs kind of went sideways for a little bit. Yeah, their, their clutch record isn't good this year. And the fact that they've had so many close home losses, their body language and their on court execution of their offense became very hesitant in terms of offensive execution and in terms of body language, they look like a demoralized team to me that just couldn't believe here we are again. We've blown it at home. We had a chance to win. Somebody makes a shot that hadn't made a shot all night. More on that in a minute. And now we've got to play overtime. And they played, to be quite honest with you, for three or four minutes like that. And uh, even though some of his shooting lines haven't been as good lately, I did think last night was one of those nights that Luca's a little bit more impervious to those emotions, not to say that he doesn't have them, but I do think because he's Luca and because he's capable of unique and special things, he's also able to shake off those feelings. He even looked like it had a grip of him for a while in overtime, but his step back three that gave him the lead for good really was the igniter. I thought in terms of how the Mavs played basically in the last minute or overtime and the, the energy that they played with. And, and then all of a sudden it's like, okay, we're back into it. Now we're able to do what we need to do to bring this thing over the line. Yeah, he's a very emotional player. You know, you saw him frustrated. I think people read the frustration at the end of regulation as, why didn't I get the ball? The play was never for him. He was a decoy trying to get Drew Holiday out of the picture. The play was always going to go to Porzingis. Um, so I, I would read it as frustration that we're going to OT rather than personally. It was, I didn't get the ball. Yeah. But he's got to, you know, work through that mm-hmm. and, and get back on track. Right. Um, and I really don't like Hardaway as the guy throwing the ball in. I want a guy that's used to, you know, passing and distributing, throwing the ball in. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that play wasn't really a great play and a great look for Borzingis. But, um, you know, the step back three, and then really when you see kind of emotionally uh, when he was able to kind of, uh, you know, drop Drew Holiday's pants twice in that one yep. uh, sequence there in the overtime. Uh, and it looked to me, when you look at replay, like uh, Zion would have gotten him, at least hard fouled him mm-hmm. or blocked the shot if he had gone to the hole. Right. Uh, so the the even though the play didn't result in a basket, uh, I think he did make the right play. Yeah, and it did result in a tip out rebound and Mavericks having the ball and ultimately being fouled and Tim Hardaway making two free throws and then they played the foul game and were able to to bring it home over the finish line from that point. You know, just to recap a few things here, we don't get to do this too often on the podcast. The games that we've been discussing things afterwards don't necessitate a lot of going over the key moments of the last couple of of minutes of the game they had a chance to win the game regulation brian and just kind of a revisit of what happened there um they're down by two seth curry hits a huge corner three that uh, they were down 109 108 Kleba had brought them to within 109-108. They actually played some pretty good defense late in the game. Before Nicolo Melli's tying three was 7.4 left in the game, they had forced misses in 10 of the previous 12 Pelicans shots. So that, that, that was really positive. Seth Curry puts them up 101 or 111-109. There was a miss by Lonzo. They got an offensive rebound, and Derek Favors, who's gone one for seven on threes this year, takes a corner three and misses he's, it. He's, yeah, if you remember from Utah days, I mean, that guy's not a stretch four. He's right. a 
he's a, he's a Julius Randle four. So I yes. mean, he, he doesn't need to be shooting threes. And Lonzo's step back three, although he was hot from three overall and has been in the past couple games, was a really bad shot. Yes, it was. I agree. Uh, they got the rebound. Seth Curry then ends up going one of two at the line. He's an 85% free throw shooter. And that number's actually dropped as of late, by the way. I mean, he spent a big chunk of the season up in the 90s when it comes to three-point shooting percentage. But he's 85. Or free, th- or free throw shooting he's 85% percentage. for his career pretty consistently. Yep, yep. 85% free throw shooter. Missed uh, the first, made the second. They're up by three. Then they do the very quick foul take, which they had to give. There are about um, 10 seconds left. You'd, you'd want to do that. New Orleans is not going to shoot the ball, you know, under with with five or more seconds left. So the fear of fouling someone in the process of shooting is not really there for a while. You you can wait more yeah. than a half a second. You're right. I do know, though, that from a Mavericks coaching perspective and specifically from a Rick perspective, I mean, I've had many conversations and been in other press conference settings over the years where he is asked about fouling in the when you're up by three. Uh, this was a, a, a foul to give even before you got to the putting somebody on the line for two free throws when you're up three. But he has uh, a significant fear and a constant concern of, well, it's the right play to do that sometimes, to foul when you're up three, but you have to be really careful because players are so smart now about being able to get into the shooting motion. Well, then just go hug them. Like, yeah. get on them so closely <laughs> that they literally can't get the shot off. Yeah, I do I mean, know It's not that, rocket science. I do know that from a strategic standpoint and from a coaching philosophy standpoint, that is is always something that's in the back of their mind is if we're going to foul, make sure you get this done before somebody gets them into the shooting motion. So that's probably why Hardaway's foul was so quick last night. I'm sure that that sort of thing was drilled to them in the huddle before they ended up going out on the floor in that particular defensive situation. And then the ball goes in bounds and Nicolo Melli, 29-year-old rookie who spent his career playing overseas. He's played in Italy. He's played at Fenerbahce in Turkey, which is a great European team. He's actually played for a year in Germany as well. For the first time in the game, makes a shot. Now, he's about a 38% three-point shooter for the year, but the dude was 0 for 8 before that, hit a corner three to tie the game at 112, and then Porzingis got a shot on the baseline at the end that uh, bounced off the iron, no good, and that sent us to overtime. Um, And that was maddening, by the way, to see a guy who was 0 for 8 on the night make a corner three to send it to overtime. And that's why I almost wonder if the Mavs, if that contributed to the vibe that we saw. It's like, I mean, even in my own mind, I think it was playing tricks on me at that point. I'm like, man, what am I going to say on the podcast about this? It's like, you know, at some point, because you can't totally say this team is just snake bit this year when it comes to close games because Seth Curry missed a free throw. So you do have some of your own ownership uh, in terms of the blame game there. But when a dude that's 0 for 8 is making the 3 that forces overtime, I mean, on my own mind, so I can imagine what it was like for those guys, you're just like, what do we have to do to win one of these things at home? Yeah, it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy because it's been hammered so much about this home record that then it just starts being a psychological mm-hmm. war game with yourself of, here we go again. Yeah. Well, and it did feel like, here we go again. Uh, overtime started with... Uh, the Pelicans taking the lead, the Mavericks tying it, the Pelicans taking the lead, the Mavericks tying it. Luka got to the free throw line uh, to make it 118-116. That was the first time the Mavericks went in front in OT with 140 to go. Zion tied it quickly, and then there was the big step back three by Luka that we've discussed with 110 left in the game. And then from that point, um, Zion had a one of two at the line. Porzingis had a big dunk off a pick and roll that gave them the uh, the very important four point cushion. And from then on, it was 
the Mavs made their free throws in two trips to the line uh, to offset two two-point baskets that New Orleans had scored. It bounced forth, bounced back and forth, that is, between a two-point game and a four-point game and that uh, final stretch of play there, that final uh, basically, what, 13, 13, 36 seconds after the Holiday score and then the Hardaway free throws that came after the Luka getting Drew Holiday on skates and the kick out to Kleba, the missed shot, but the back tap rebound. Uh, from that point on, it was it was bouncing back between a two and four point game. With the Mavericks fortunately making their free throws, Hardaway two and uh, Porzingis two down the stretch. And the unsung hero, the, the MVP of this game to me is Maxi. I mean, his defense on Zion was unbelievable. I think other than Giannis, the best defense he's probably seen in his short career so far. Well, and, and I would add that. Talking to Antonio Daniels, the outstanding uh, TV analyst for the New Orleans Pelicans. He's in his first year doing that, but he's actually filled in uh, when Harp had to miss a few games a couple of years ago. Antonio filled in and worked with me, and I really enjoyed working with him. Great guy, really good basketball mind, you know, really good energy. And he told Harp and I at halftime, this is the best anybody's defended him all year. And it seemed like that our observation on our Fox Sports Southwest telecast about it was that uh, Maxi really understood Zion's tendency that he wants to get back going left every time if he can. So he was ready for that. Um, did you notice like in the two or three times that Zion lost his footing or ran into Kleba, even when Zion falls down, it looks and sounds different than anybody else out there on the floor. He's just such a mammoth man. And there were a couple of times it's like, gosh, is the guy hurt because of how unique and how forceful just him falling to the floor sounds on, and I, I noticed that on a couple of yeah, occasions. Yeah, so he, he's night. got the, you know, it's not just like Shaq, who is power. He's got power and speed. Yeah. So it's a lot of inertia going on. If you're just yeah. a big man, then he's going to use his quickness. If you're a little guy, he's going to use his power on you. He's got the combination of both. And I mean, I was just shocked at Maxie's ability to to handle him. I mean, in the towards the end of the second quarter, Zion was visibly frustrated that he couldn't get anything done and mm-hmm. that he was getting beat up and, and not being able to play his game. I thought they were going to have to kind of play as you play against Giannis and build a wall and kind of just stop him a little bit. Mm-hmm. But you know what Maxi was able to do, it got me to the point of saying, listen, if I'm building a championship roster, a team that I really want to go all the way with, I'm comfortable with Maxi as one of the players closing games. Now he, right. he's a, alongside Porzingis, if we're going to kind of play this Porzingis at the five, and we'll talk more about KP in a bit, you know, Maxie's the perfect complement because he can take that responsibility that you don't want KP to take for those kinds of players, but yet still play offensively really well as well. And listen, I, I was just amazed at what he was able to do. And, you know, the team had 11 blocks in the first half, which was a franchise record. Maxie and KP both with five blocks. I mean, they, they just absolutely neutralized and if this game doesn't go into overtime uh he misses 20 points zion you know for the first time i think uh since i guess fourth game yeah yeah i think it's he had scored 20 plus in 12 straight and he'd scored 25 or more in seven of the previous eight games and the one game that he didn't score 25 he scored 24 so he was on a stretch of averaging almost 29 a game over the previous now and towards the end of overtime the only thing was when maxi came out and you know and zion had that bucket you mentioned he uh, he came out and met him at the free throw line when he got the ball, and, and you want to stay back because you know Zion's not you know you want him to take that jumper 
right now because you know he's going to go to the hole and so you know Zion just blew right past him but uh, as you mentioned it, it was really you know Jamal Mosley in the defensive game study and I'm sure he worked with with Maxi on on those tendencies and as a young player you know he hasn't he, he doesn't have those summers to kind of go work on other stuff yet he's mm-hmm. he's going to go back to his bread and butter and that's going to the left do you remember whenever we talked last week and and I really appreciated that you brought this up because I was really proud of what we did on the telecast and that was you know Maxi being mic'd up and Fox Sports Southwest tweeted out the best of the audio clips from that. And and we said this on the telecast that, you know, part of the best audio we got that night was uh, clips of him on the floor during action. Uh, you know, write, screen, be there, somebody get ball, you know, all these sort of things that are said over the course of a game that, that fans you know, can't hear because you just you're too far away from the action. Yeah. Yeah. And there is noise and there's just all the sort of things going on in the game. So we got just a really good inside view at Maxie's a willingness to communicate defensively because that's just sometimes people, you know, surprisingly just don't talk out there nearly as much as they should. So he's communicative defensively. And also there's clear based on watching that a real sense of awareness of who needs to be where, what needs to be looked at, what the game plan is, who needs to be covered and that sort of thing and, and how they need to be covered. Uh, and I think that he's just really impressed me with what a student of the game. It seems like he is in his awareness on the floor and especially from a defensive standpoint I mean one way I would reflect that to you in numbers Brian is with the five blocks that he had last night second time that he's had five blocks here in the last couple of weeks he had that five block game against Atlanta since January 1st if you're going on total number of blocks he has 56 block shots since the 1st of January what is the significance of that well only Hassan Whiteside Brooke Lopez and Rudy Gobert have more in the league since Kleba has total blocks 56 since January the 1st and combine that with what Porzingis is doing you're yep. getting good rim protection yep and uh as I tweeted last night, it's the best defense we've ever seen from an NBA player from Wurzburg. <laughs> I really admired and appreciated that. I'm sure that somewhere Dirk did get a laugh out of that. The, yeah. uh, and, I, and I spoke with Maxie after the game, and, and uh, you know he's so self-deprecating. I said, who's wearing your jersey on defense? Uh, but uh, I was joking. I said, great job. And, and you know his concern was, well, I didn't do much on offense. I said, buddy, don't worry about it. When, when you're doing what you're doing against Zion defensively, mm-hmm. You know, everybody else can pick up the slack offensively in that one. But I do want to talk about Zion and kind of this uh, youth movement in the NBA because, you know, the Mavs are really in that group. You you know, this is kind of the chapter one of what we hope is a long, uh, you know, rivalry Mm -hmm. that we can see for a while. Um, There is some concern about Zion physically. I just, you know, you look at Blake Griffin as a, a comp, but who didn't even have as big of a body as Zion, but had tons of knee issues. Right. Um, you know, the worry is that his, his legs literally can't take the force that he's putting on him. Um, I will say that, you know, David Griffin's literal first move as president of basketball ops was to bring in uh, Aaron Nelson and the Phoenix training staff, two people from there mm-hmm. and, and, and get them over there. And, and uh, you know, I talked to Aaron last night. I mean, if if there's any group of trainers that you would feel comfortable that Zion's in good hands with, it's it's them. So, mm-hmm. you know, he's in the best possible care. Um, but, you know, that's something that I think is going to be a constant concern. But if we're going to say uh, best players under 25, 
then you know my list is the 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 surefire list is Luca and Zion. Mm-hmm. Yep. Surefire, and I put them in that order: Luca, then Zion. Yep. Um, and then you know you can talk about Simmons, you can talk about Donovan Mitchell. Uh, I've got Porzingis, Ja, and Tatum as my next three. If you want to go for a top five, wow, that's impressive. And you know, Porzingis twenty four, so obviously he's not got a lot of time left to spend on right. this list. Now, if you want to, if you want to get, you know, if you want to get a little loosey goosey and add twenty six year olds, then you're bringing in Jokic and Embiid, Pascal, Beal. Obviously, Giannis would be surefire on that list. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, the only one really surefire is Giannis and. Listen, I don't think Porz- I don't think it's crazy to put Porzingis, even if you're including the 26 year olds, on that top five list. So we would be, you know, the only team with two players, and and I think that really bodes well for what the future could hold when the Hardens and LeBrons and Russes and Kawhis age out. That in four, three, four years, you know, we could be along with New Orleans, how it develops, and certain teams, you know, Boston, uh, in that elite group mm-hmm. and you brought the, this is not the first time that you brought this up that that's kind of what i believe your point about this was leading up to the trade deadline for the mavericks don't do anything that's so consumed about this year because the long play is what you need to be thinking about if you're the mavericks right now you need to be positioning yourself obviously to be as good as you can right now but to be thinking about when Kawhi and paul george and harden and westbrook and the, the the elite of the and LeBron and, and company in Los Angeles, and obviously this will have a younger Anthony Davis, but whenever these good players that are the centerpiece of what we perceive to be the best teams in the West and the championship contending teams in the West, whenever these teams in three to four seasons, five maybe at the outside, age out from championship contender status, then that's when the Mavericks' time to really step to the forefront is. That seems like that's still a long time to wait, but I do think that's the the good long-range view that you have of it. And even Steph and Clay will be older at that point, Yeah, right? that's a very so, good point. Sure. You know, I mean, Steph's, uh, Steph's a week away, or Seth Curry's brother, as I like to call him now, uh, based on how Seth has been playing this week. That's, that's, I've started doing that on the telecast lately. It's, it's, uh, that guy out there is Seth Curry's brother. Uh, he's going to start uh, uh, playing in this game here at the end of the week, uh, Thursday night against Toronto, but he's going to be 33 years old. And uh, next week, his birthday is March 14th, 1988. So, so Steph's about to turn 33 years old at this point. Yeah. If you're looking at the the decade of the, you know, 2020s and who are the players that are going to define that in the NBA, I mean, Luca, Zion and Giannis, obviously new players will come in, but those are the three names off the top of your head that, that are going to be there. And so we have one of those cores and we've got a, a young number two that, you know, just got named player of the week mm-hmm. and, and, and is just absolutely balling out. And, you know, it, it is a, you know, let's get into KP a little bit because I think there's a, um, you know, he's got a comfort factor, A, in his own game. Mm-hmm. You know, they asked him to kind of be a pick and pop guy, but you're seeing more post-ups. You're seeing him get comfortable with that that play, much different than how he played in New York. But he's combining both elements of his game. B is getting comfortable with Luca playing mm-hmm. together, and it's been choppy because one or the other has been out a lot. Mm-hmm. And then C, he's just frankly healthy after yeah. getting into game shape and getting reps and playing. Um, so I think all three are kind of coming together at once, and that's why you're seeing 
you know, how he's playing. And, you know, Brian, he's not it's not just he's healthy uh, along your lines of Aaron Nelson and the training staff that New Orleans has to work with Zion. Remember that you've got Casey Smith, Deion Calhoun, Casey Jer- from the Phoenix system. Yep. Jeremy Holsopel. Uh, you know, you've got, and, and, and I, you know, I don't want to leave out any names, but just not, not don't want, don't want to run down the whole Mavericks training and strength and conditioning staff, but they're all very, very vital to this. So much work that KP has done. And I, I don't, you know, th- look, these guys aren't patting themselves on the back. It's not like that about the work they've done with KP. But I do think that there's a recognition that part of the reason why Porzingis is having this level of play that he's experiencing, basically starting with the last game in January, and we'll get to the numbers in a moment, is that there is a strength and a flexibility and a durability and a musculature structure improvement and balance and all the things that he was lacking from a strength and muscular support standpoint when he was in New York, that's there now, or at least it's getting a lot better. It's not a finished product by any stretch, but I do think that from a uh, training coach strength and conditioning coach standpoint, there's a lot of really good feeling about Porzingis and how he looks and how his body is reacting and where his body is right now and how it's contributing to his recent stretch of play. In the mid-2000s, when I was in the front office of the Mavs, there were two people on the training staff. Mm -hmm. You had a trainer and an assistant trainer. That's it. Mm -hmm. And now, as you mentioned, there's too many to mention. Yes. That shows you... And, and Cubans talked about it often about, you know, how we are investing the Mavs in. I said we, but I don't even work there. But as a fan, you can say we. Yeah, the you can Mavs say are investing. You know, Casey this summer, Casey Smith went from head trainer to kind of a, a step up where he's in charge of just, you know, I don't even know if they call it VP of health or something. Where yeah. And Dion Calhoun is now the head trainer. I believe it's direct director of sports performance or something so along those lines. That way he can think about everything, mm-hmm. not just, you know acute injuries in training, but, you know, how are you sleeping? How are you eating? You know, a holistic approach to your body and mind. He's in charge of all that. So they're doing everything now head to toe for a player. Mm -hmm. And, you know, from what I understand, when KP got here a year ago, they basically scrapped the Knicks plan and started Mm -hmm. from ground one and started over again. Right. So that now a year later, you're seeing the fruits of this entire 360 degree plan they've had for him all along. You know, they uh, the from the uh, Mavs and, and their training standpoint and when I get chances to interview Mark and they don't happen too often, but when I get chances to sit down with him. Uh, and, and these these seem like they happen. You know, Mark does like a season ticket holder, high-level season ticket holder Q&A every summer. And this is kind of where I've been able to talk to him and get the information. But one year, a couple of years ago, I asked Mark about, you know, how being an innovative guy and trying to be, uh, you know, out ahead of the curve on things. Because one of the things Mark says that, uh, you know, when you when you have an innovative strategy in the NBA and then you get to the point where everybody else is copying it, then you've got to look for the next strategy so you yes. can be ahead of everybody Fluffy else. Fluffy towels and PlayStations yeah. are now commonplace. <laughs> it's moved on from that to, to, you know, the next thing and the next thing and the next thing as the years have gone on. And when I asked him about this two years ago, I said, what's the... Uh, the area right now where there's not enough investment in the NBA and where you think you can be ahead of other teams, ahead of the curve with other teams. And it's bioanalytics, basically. It's analyzing everything there is to analyze about a player from a health standpoint and their body and performance. And what can we do? What every little imaginable thing can we do from 
encouraging different sleep patterns to nutrition to uh, how we work them out what we ask of them how that relates to injury prevention all of that right now is something that this team is heavily heavily zeroed in on and focused on and invested in and I, and I mean invested in time and belief in I don't mean necessarily invested in capital and if you to understand what I'm saying but but there's uh, you know there's just a real belief in, in that mentality in the organization right now and I think Porzingis is a great example of how that's all playing out well again when I was with the Mavs you know, uh, last decade or in the in mid 2000s, you, you, I think the whole basketball operations staff maybe had 10 people, including the video guys. And now there's probably 50 people there because <laughs> people see the coaches and they see the players and they think that's it. But as you mentioned, there's a health group, there's a sports psychologist, there's a um, there's an analytics group. There's an analytics group, which is big now. And I was the only one that there's a there's somebody where if you get a new player like Willie Colley Stein where are you going to stay? How do I get an apartment? Yeah. I need to, where do I get my hair cut? What, there's somebody who helps coordinate that. Yeah, for sure. There, there's somebody who works with big men. There's somebody who helps, you know, break down the film for them. There's so many pieces that go into every aspect of making it right. And they all have to carry their weight to get that done. And it's, it's absolutely essential for, for the, you know, how well the team does. So let's give everybody some numbers and I want to hit some stuff with you on Porzingis and I want uh, to see what you think about this. So starting with the January 31st game, Brian against Houston, uh, this is a stretch of 16 games for the Mavs, but they've had four back-to-backs on that time frame. So he's only played in 12 of these games. His numbers over a 12 game played stretch. Uh, and this game is the game before the game that occurred the day after Luca suffered the ankle injury in practice that knocked him out of those seven games. So Luca got hurt in practice when the Mavs were on a home off day on January 30th. They left to go to Houston. They played on January 31st, and this 12-game stretch starts then. How does 27.8 points per game, 11 rebounds per game, 2.3 blocks on 50% shooting from the floor and 39% from the three-point line, how does that grab you? It's it's phenomenal. I mean, that's why he's the unicorn. And, you know, really, I think the biggest development that's occurred is him playing the five. By the way, that also that stretch of games is the stretch of games they started playing after Dwight Powell got injured uh, in the game. I believe it was on uh, January 28th. And there's an interesting quote that Rick had a couple of days ago uh, on Porzingis. He says, this is the picture of what the future of the five is going to look like. Mm -hmm. There'll be a guy with great length, can shoot long range, can drive it, can pass it, can protect the rim, rebound, knows how to play. You stack it all up. This guy's a great young player. That This is the future of how the Mavs are going to play. Mm -hmm. And that's why I really like Maxie next to him. I think Powell can be a great guy. He may come off the bench, just like the the, the, the Lakers play with Anthony Davis at the five, or sometimes they go big with McGee or Howard. The Mavs will be versatile and be able to do both. Mm -hmm. But I think they really like... KP at the five and it, it just you know we talk about small ball in the Rockets the Mavs are playing the same way offensively spreading it out mm-hmm. it's just that their small ball five can protect the rim and defend and block shots while theirs can't you mm-hmm. know it's so rare to have a big who's seven three be able to shoot like KP does so we're playing offensively that way it's just we don't have to give it up on the defensive end like they do right so KP in that stretch Brian has nine games of at least 20 points and 10 rebounds but uh, some other just 
impressive individual performances that he's had in that stretch. Do you remember we did a podcast a couple of weeks ago and we mentioned on uh, the particular game that the Mavs played and won, I believe it was, oh, it was our last podcast. When they played in Orlando, the first game out of the break, KP had something like 24 points, uh, 10 rebounds, five assists, and five blocks. And look, that's a great stat line. And we were wowed at the time that he became the first Maverick player, other than Dirk, who did it twice, to have at least 20 points, 10 rebounds, five assists, and five blocks in a game. Fantastic line. Dirk had five blocks in a game? He did. He did a couple of times, even, uh, to go happy along with birthday. the other numbers. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> happy birthday, Dirk. Um, but in the case of KP, Look at the last two games he's had. And again, it puts him just at historic levels in terms of individual game performance. The Minnesota game, 38 points, 13 rebounds, five block shots. If he hadn't gone six for 10 at the line in that game, then he had a chance to have his new career high. His career high in a game is 40, but he had 38 points, 13 rebounds, five block shots. He doesn't play in the second night of the back-to-back, and he was missed, and that was a really unfortunate loss for the Mavs when they played at Chicago on Monday night. He comes back to play last night's game against New Orleans, played a career-high 45 minutes, and once again, 34 points, 12 rebounds, five block shots. So games of at least 30 points, 10 rebounds, and five blocks. Dirk did it twice in his career, and Porzingis has now done it twice in his career, and they've been in back-to-back games. I mean, we are seeing some, I mean, uh, at this rate, depending on how the rest of the week goes, as the Mavs have two more games that they got to play this week um, against Indiana and Memphis, Western Conference Player of the Week isn't out of the realm of possibility for next week, given how well Porzingis has played in, uh, well, I guess he's only played one game this week at this point, so we'll see how the other two go. But you know, he's certainly got a, a great starting block on being under consideration for that award again. And that, you know, I mean, at the end of the day, that award isn't that big of a deal. But it is nice to realize that, you know, A, it's indicative that you're playing very, very well and playing amongst the best players in your conference at that point and for it to be recognized. And another part of the equation, they don't give it to people who put up numbers on the team going 0-4 in a week. It usually is going to coincide with winning at a high level. And that's why I put him really high on my under 25 list. I mean, you hear the names of, of you know, Simmons and Mitchell and Tatum, and but, but KP belongs in those discussions now. I mean, mm-hmm. he's been out of the game for a long time, so people, you know, forgot and just dismissed. And he, you know, played into shape and all the factors that led to a probably start that frustrated him. But, you know, we're seeing the fruits of what, I think Donnie always loved about him even when he was a Nick. I mean, I've seen emails from scouts when you know, three years before he was in the draft going, keep an eye on this guy. The fact of the matter is he actually, his value increased to the point where he was a high lottery pick, you know, too much when the Mavs couldn't kind of hide him or sneak and get yep. him, you know, later. But, uh, you know, you're seeing him, I think the five is such a big development for him because, you know, the news came out that the Mavs and Hardaway are talking about an extension that would, kind of lock him in uh, uh, long-term here with the team. They really like what uh, Donnie said it yesterday. He's kind of the Michael Finley, if you call, you know, Luca the Nash yeah. and, and and KP the Dirk. Um, so if you have those three and, and you know, I'm putting Maxie in as a fourth, uh, really the only hole left is kind of getting a, a two who's, you know, has some playmaking, can, can lock down, defend and shoot, which is easier said than done. But, uh, you know, as we patiently build this team, 
you know, you're seeing those blocks put into pace, put into place, you know, really well. And uh, as we, you know, we're only two, two and a half games out of the fifth spot. I kind of want to get in the four or five to avoid the Clippers in the second round. Mm-hmm. I think I'm not afraid of anybody in the first. Man, look at you win. Put, yeah, putting but, the Mavericks right through the first round already. Yes, yes. <laughs> um, wow. <laughs> but, uh, you know, we have a game with the Jazz left, a game with OKC. I think we've already lost the Jazz tiebreaker. Yes, that's correct. Um, the, but, uh, the OKC tiebreaker is still very much in play. And that's the last game of the year. Yes. Uh, I'll have a thought on the Memphis tiebreaker, by the way, with that game coming up on Friday. Uh, we've gone 30 minutes into this thing, and we ha- haven't even had a chance to mention Luka last night getting 30 points, 17 rebounds, 10 assists, which marks the history-making 22nd triple-double of his career, Brian. He's now past Jason Kidd. He's got the most triple-doubles in franchise history. Jay Kidd had 21 in 500 games played in two different stints with the Mavs. Luka did in a year and a half. 122 games. 122 games, 22 triple-doubles to set the franchise record. And uh, obviously what the number is going to end up being, I mean, I don't even, I can't even wrap my head around what the potential number is going to be on that. But, uh, you know, just just a sign of a lot of the good potential things that are going on on the team is 30 minutes into the show. <laughs> it's the first time we bring up yeah, Lucas setting. Granted. Now, yeah. he did have x-rays on his thumb. They were negative. It's sore. Uh, I have not seen... As we record this on Thursday, any updates in terms of, you know, sitting out a game or anything as Ja comes in on Friday yeah. for the Grizzlies? Uh, you know, listen, I wouldn't be upset if they sat him and, and, you know, just to kind of work through it. Uh, if it's really bothering him, you know, I want him healthy in, in April, not now. But, mm-hmm. um, you know, we'll see how that plays out. What if I, I got some more numbers to wow you because we've also made it 30 minutes into the podcast and haven't mentioned the hottest player in Dallas, Texas, as I referred to him last night when he knocked down a big three. I think the three that put him ahead in the last uh, minute of the of regulation. Seth Curry had 21 points, 7 of 12 from the floor, 6 of 9 on threes last night. He had a 27-point game the other day in Minnesota. He had a career-high 37 in Miami, Brian, where he went 13 of 15 from the floor. Remember that the start of this stretch that I'm about to tell you about was the game in Charlotte where the Mavericks went on the road and Curry made his first 10 shots of which six of them I believe were three pointers the the stretch of shooting and scoring and playing that Seth Curry has right now is if you look at his last 10 games and this dates back to February the 8th and there was that unfortunate missed game against Chicago the other night that's an annoying one but uh, not that he missed it just that they lost it but 19.8 points per game for Seth over the last 10 61% from the floor, 59% from three on a high volume of threes, Brian. The the guy is averaging almost seven three-point attempts a game, making four three-point attempts a game, and that's leading to 59% from the three-point line over a 10-game stretch on a high volume of three-pointers. Yeah, if you even the whole month of February, he shot 59% from three and has kept it up, you know, in the in, into March, and yeah, I mean that's why they target him in free agency. It, it's just absolutely amazing because this team is so three dependent. We take the second most threes uh, as a percentage of total shots in the league. Yeah, forty one threes a game. Forty six percent of our shots are threes. The Rockets are at forty nine percent. They shot in the Chicago uh, Miami game rather sixty percent of their shots were from three. Right. Um, so you want people. Uh, that can you know hit that at a great pace and our effective field goal percentage and, and our ability to, to hit them is, is you know top 10 um but matter yeah, of fact going into last night the effective field goal percentage for the mavericks was 54.8 fourth in the league and, and threes and, it's it, three specifically it's seven five or six or seven in the league something like that 
Um, you know, I, I know that this has come up a little bit about last night. Maybe one last thing to to put tonight or last night's game to bed, atmosphere wise. What did you What did you feel about it? Because I know Rick made a point in his press conference to talk to use the term that I think we probably overuse in our analysis of some of these games, but playoff atmosphere. I mean, I think with Zion coming to town and with the late game, that does seem to to ramp things up a little bit. Going to overtime. Uh, Atmosphere-wise, it was pretty darn cool. Yeah, it night. was. I, I I actually noted that it was packed at tip. Now it's an eight thirty tip, so you know people. Yeah, you have no excuse. No excuse not <laughs> to be there. Uh, I sit on the media row up in the auxiliary media, you know, in the first level, and you know you had the random media members that don't ever come. They were there. It was a packed house there. It was definitely um, you know people came to see Zion, but it, they came to see the two of them play against each other and the teams play, and it was a fun game. Uh, it was definitely, I think, one of the most electric atmospheres of the year. You have moments in games where if it's close and Luca makes a play, it's fun. But I think throughout it was, uh, especially when Maxi and, and KP were setting the tone defensively against Zion and not, yeah. you know, and having those great blocks and then, you know, running it down the other way on the, on the, uh, down the court. So, so yeah, I think it was great. And it, it obviously pretends well to what hopefully can be a, a home court advantage in the playoffs. So we are a, not just talk about the last game, but we are a review of the week that was and a preview of the week that is podcast. Um, I don't want to spend, because we we're running out of time, but I don't want to spend a lot on this, but what did you think of this two and two road trip that Dallas had, which included uh, a, a very nice win against San Antonio, where they did weather the storm of a very poor start to the fourth quarter, the Spurs making a run, and then again, Porzingis and Luka down the stretch, particularly Porzingis with six straight points when the game was tied, had a three-point play and a three-point basket, part of a 28-point, 12-rebound performance he had that night. Um, a very frustrating loss to end it against Chicago when Porzingis was out on the second night of a back-to-back and Curry got banged up in the Minnesota game, so he missed it. But still, uh, you know, you had a double-digit lead for significant stretches and just really played a very poor and very frustrating second half. But, uh, but a two-and-two two road trip, you know, I mean, what did you what did you think about how that all went down? You know, it, it it's choppy. I mean, you can talk about the Chicago game, but again, you know, you didn't have your full complement of players. Yeah. Um, you know, the Minnesota game it was was actually surprising because you know we all know, we've all seen the Instagram videos. I mean, Luca had his birthday party in Miami after that game, and it went well into the morning, and so. Uh, even though the game was Sunday in Minnesota, uh, I'm not a betting man, but if I was, I probably would have put a couple of bucks on uh, <laughs> Minnesota just if the legs were a little heavy in that one. But the Mavs came out and, and took care of, of business. Yeah, they did. So, you know, when the playoffs are around, there aren't any back-to-backs. You're going to have your full complement of players, assuming everybody is, you know, healthy. Mm-hmm. Um, so, listen, if KP had played in the Chicago game, then we're winning that game. If you know, uh, yeah. San Antonio, they took care of business. Miami is a very, very good team, especially at home. Yeah, they have the third best home record in the league. They've only lost four home games this year, although one of them was just before Dallas got there against Minnesota, which may have been a bad thing for Dallas because it may have pissed him off. So, you know, I think actually this stretch coming up is really key because it's a lot of every other nights and, mm-hmm. and they're good teams. If you look at Memphis and Indiana coming in here and then going to San Antonio, uh, and then, you know, another ESPN home date, a national TV home date uh, with Denver coming in here. So, uh, you know, when we speak again a week from now on our next pod, um, you know, it'll be interesting to see how 
these games play because, you know, listen, Memphis has given this team fits and Jaws playing really, really well. And they're mm-hmm. fighting for that eighth spot with New Orleans, amongst other teams that are gunning for them uh indiana and i think you have some notes on how they've struggled since trying to put oladipo back in there yeah. we've always had issues going down to san antonio right uh and then denver who i'm not a huge fan of but you know they've got Jokic, and so maxi yeah. and the big boys of collie stein and gilcrest and that, maybe even some bobon are going to be pressed into duty and, and a reminder of 2011 when george carl was noted for recording a video where he happened to say somebody asked him a question and he said well i wouldn't mind if we played dallas in the first round of the playoffs uh and for a head coach to say something like that is you know that's that's very very out there well if you watch the national tv this morning on the talking heads shows uh you know the question is um, you know, is Dallas a team you want to avoid in the first round? Yeah, like, I feel like the, the Denver's. <laughs> I feel like Denver's the team you got circled right now. That that's who you want to play. In I, the first I don't round. fear Denver. I, I uh, listen. I'd, I'd take a shot at Houston. The only team I really fear uh, in the first round. Obviously, I fear the Lakers. Is the Clippers? You know, I, I don't want to. I don't want to see them. Um, so, looking ahead to these games, the Memphis story for Friday night is that man. They have come out of the break and lost five in a row to start post-All-Star break play. But they have bounced back with a home win against the Lakers over the weekend, and then they've gone on the road and beaten Atlanta and beaten Brooklyn. Now, those and are that not... Atlanta game was one where uh, the Atlanta coach uh, had about a 30-second press yeah. conference. He, he, he basically was like effort. That it's been, when, when you get to the effort... Uh, <laughs> It, you're in a rough place. Well, they're ending up a three-game road trip. The first two wins on it, uh, not anything to write home about, but you got to play who's on your schedule and beat them. And it has been really important for them to lift them back up, to give them a little bit more breathing room because Sacramento, San Antonio, Portland, New Orleans all have their reasons why they believe they're the team and the 9, 10, 11, 12 grouping in the West to still have realistic hope at trying to make a push at Memphis for the eighth spot. Memphis does have one of the most difficult schedules in the NBA down the stretch. Uh, we noted that a couple of weeks ago. I don't know if it's changed much in the last two weeks, but there was certainly a it's point in time. not as difficult. Yeah, they, they've, they've had to play the Lakers a couple of times and the Clippers, so those obviously have taken some of those tough games out of the mix for them. But losing five in a row to start post-break play and then winning three straight. So they'll come in here at 31-31 and 31 on Friday night. And a matter of fact, I think maybe – uh, I, I think you and I did a podcast after a Memphis game where the Mavs and Memphis were 71-71 in the third quarter, and then the absolute bottom fell out for Dallas. Memphis went on something like a 22-2 run. They hustle, they play hard, and yeah. you got to come ready to play. Injuries, though, this is a factor that they're dealing with with Jaron Jackson Jr. and Brandon Clark, two very talented young bigs who are out of the mix. And then um, big night for me personally uh, on Saturday night. We'll spring forward, and all will be right with the world whenever we'll have daylight going late into the day on Sunday. Good uh, Yeah, <laughs> I'm so excited about that. Uh, however, I won't get to enjoy that daylight because um, – the Mavericks will be playing a game that will start at 6 o'clock on Sunday night against the Indiana Pacers. Now, Oladipo has not played the last two games, so what his status will be for Sunday's game at this point, I don't know. But I feel like they've really had, and look, even their own management said they were going to have three seasons this year. The stretch of the season before Oladipo played, the stretch of the season when he started playing and they were going through the expected difficulty of working him back into the mix, and then the playoffs. Since he's come back, 
uh, and that happened a couple of games before Dallas went up there and won Brian on February 3rd. They're 5-5 five and five in games that Oladipo has played. So they have almost an identical record to Dallas at this point. They're 37-25. and 25, The Mavs are 38-25. and 25. So that's, uh, you know, certainly got its challenges, but the Mavs proved that they can go up to Indiana and win basically one month ago. And, you know, uh, as we wrap this up, you know, the Mavs, uh, are working through some injuries. You know, we got five weeks to go in this season, but yeah. uh, you know, Finney Smith went out with a. That's right. Good point. Uh, an injury. We don't have a report on that yet. And he's the only Mav who's played in every game this season. He's the last man standing in that regard. So hopefully, and uh, if you look at good to go. you know what they started with in terms of people who regularly would play like in a playoff rotation, uh, they start with seven players. And when he went out, they really only had six yeah. of those players in there. Uh, Brunson uh, is week to week um, but the expectation is from people I talk to that you know he will be back at some point in the regular season yeah. and yeah. and will be able to contribute and rehab season he'll probably have to have some surgery similar to what uh, Berea had in 2010 off season if you remember so rehabbing a torn labrum in his non-shooting shoulder in his right shoulder but right. still obviously from problematic. the non-flagrant foul in Atlanta yeah that uh, didn't even get reviewed so you know we have some nicks and cuts so you see players like Kid Gilchrist Stein uh, you know uh, Cleveland's on the roster I mean people are having to play some minutes that that you know they're not used to but that's part of what you're gonna have to go through right now yeah and uh san antonio on the road and then um you know and and by the way fun fact there in the existence of the mavericks franchise and 39 previous seasons they have never swept a season series with san antonio that place has been, which is something they have a chance to do because they're three and zero in the four game season series against. You know them how this many year, times so. I've watched a road game and just, you know, as it's collapsing, I hear all follow well, just oh no, like. <laughs> just, I do wear my emotions on my sleeve, particularly in games against San Antonio, and I have grown to really exp- uh, admire and respect what they've been able to maintain from a consistency level as an organization. I really have. Uh, so I think winning a title in 2011 suppressed a lot of like the really like anger that I had towards other rivals. And, you know, just at that point, it's like, finally, okay, we've won all these other like uh, wars that you had with other teams. They seem a little bit more insignificant now. My, so my, massive respect for San Antonio, but but still want to kick their butt and, and do something the Mavs have never done this uh, this and the existence of the franchise, and that is sweep a season series. My favorite memories of San Antonio one is, of course, the Dirks and one over Ginobili yeah. in Game 7 in, in 06, where my friend Nick and I bear hugged each other yeah. uh, like we were in love. And, you know, because if you remember when Ginobili hit the three right before that, I mean, my heart sank to my stomach because yeah. we were not a three-point shooting team. That seemed like the biggest deficit ever. Yeah, a three-point deficit with 30 seconds to go. It's like, um, how are we going to come back? And when I was with the Mavs, I remember we were staying at the Westin at that time. And it was during the playoff series in 03, mm-hmm. and, or 02, excuse me. And, uh, you know, during NBA nap time, on game day, which yeah. is the middle of the day when everybody kind of all the players take their naps and after eating their carb filled lunch, uh, it was right on the river and people with the, the boats would come by and, and have foghorns to wake everybody up. <laughs> but that was the game five that we were down big and Van Axel and company helped mm-hmm. lead the big turnaround. And I was right at the bench 
and and Walt Williams picks me up and carries me into the locker room <laughs> as TNT's going to break, and he's yelling, "Put away the Kool Aid!" <laughs> you know, the Gatorade dump. Put away yep. the Kool Aid because it was a it was an elimination game. We were down three one, and that was the series Dirk got hurt in, in Game Three, the so Conference Finals in two thousand three. Those, are my, those yeah. are my two best memories of San Antonio. You know, I remember that series in 06, and you and I were were hanging out and just uh, talking and chatting and and probably burning off nervous energy when we were down there in San Antonio the night before Game 7 of that uh, conference semifinal. God, that was a conference semifinal. It wasn't even like a conference final, but that second-round series in 2006. And I remember, uh, you know, you're, you're, you have told the story many times, even on this podcast, maybe we'll revisit another time, about going and spending a summer and some time with Dirk and seeing what a ridiculous workout regimen he would have on a day in August back in Würzburg, back in, especially at that stage of his career when he was younger and, and was still in his ascendancy as a player. And we were talking that night and this conversation has stuck with me for 14 years now after the fact, you realize that whenever you go do this hour long workout with nobody in the gym and you're just dying and and, and an hour-long cardio workout along with multiple hours of working on basketball skills on your game on the floor. When you go do a three- and four-hour workout on a day in the summer, this is why you do it for what's coming up tomorrow night, Game 7. And I'll be damned if he didn't you know, make something happen. And when you, have a, you work on your left hand 10 years before you ever use it, Mm-hmm. You know, so that in 11, when you go past Bosch or Haslam, you have that left hand comfortable to use. Yep. And then we just talked about Zion. Like he's going to have to then do that. And Luca as well. You're going to have to keep working on your game every summer. And you see Rick last summer and Jamal Mosley, they're going to Slovenia. He's coming here every six weeks. He's in one of those places and, and continue to develop and grow. And so, um, the future is bright. The Zion yeah. Luca battle, yeah. and hopefully, we'll be able to enjoy this for years to come. Yeah, Derek Harper said in our telecast one last note about Zion. He said, "I think the highest compliment you can pay a player is Zion's come in in the middle of the season, and what he's done hasn't taken away from anybody else." Because you don't have to run plays for him, really. I mean, he's just able to, I mean, I know this sounds like crazy to say, but he's almost just able to bump into 24 points a game what he does and so it's actually our, yeah. easier you know Luca remember Luca saying it's easier for him because there's no you know packing the zone it's yeah. more wide open in the middle for him to, yep. to do what he does well your point is right though and I did, didn't want to get back into a lot of Zion and analysis because we're right up at the end of uh, our time together but but your point is exactly right the future is looking really exciting and the future of us is going to be after next Wednesday's game right a week yep. from today a week from now we'll have a Another one of these. All right, we will. Yes, so this is 77 Minutes of Heaven. Uh, Make sure to check it out weekly. Uh, We have our podcast weekly, and Tim Cato has his podcast once a week as well here as part of 77 Minutes, the Dallas Mavericks podcast from the Athletic Podcast Network. For former Dallas Mavericks Director of Basketball Development, his allergies will be better next week, I promise, and he'll be back hosting Brian Damaris. I'm Mavs TV play-by-play man Mark Folliwell. Great to have you listening again this week, and we look forward to another exciting 77 Minutes of Heaven podcast next week. We'll see you then.